The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Today, we are just thrilled. We are sitting at the law school with our wonderful Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, and we're going to have a fabulous interview about his brand new book called The Conservative Assault on the Constitution, and I have it sitting right in front of me. I read it, and my daughter read it, and we think it's just incredibly fascinating, and and I like it that it's easy to read. So let me, if you are listening and you don't know about our wonderful Dean here, I'm going to tell you, we've had him on the show before. Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, a Harvard Law graduate, is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, which we are sitting in this beautiful building that is going to be done very soon. In fact, the last time we interviewed him, we were upstairs in a makeshift office. Um, Previously, he taught at Duke Law School for four years, where, by the way, my son went to, to undergraduate there. And when he was at Duke, he won the Duke University Scholar Teacher of the Year Award in 2006. And before that, he taught for 21 years at the University of Southern California School of Law and then served for four years as the director of the Center for Communications Law and Policy. Dean Chemerinsky has also taught at UCLA School of Law and DePaul University College of Law. His expertise, among many, one of his very, very uh, distinguished expertise, is constitutional law, federal practice, civil rights and civil liberties, and appellate litigation. He is the author of seven books, and today we're going to be talking about his brand new book, which just came out in October 2010, The Conservative Assault on the Constitution. He frequently argues case before the nation's highest court, including the Supreme Court, and he's also a commentator on legal issues for national and local media, and he is also the author of a leading textbook on constitutional law, and in my book, he walks on water. So and, sweet. 
And we're just so thrilled to have you. And you can even learn much more about him at the UCI website. But we're going to get started because we're, we're just thrilled. Thank you so much for giving us some time today. Thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you again. So how is it? You have gone through so much to get when you came to this law school. Are you, are you digging your feet in and having fun? It's thrilling. We now have two classes of students. We have 60 second-year students and 83 first-year students. And they're just terrific. We have 21 faculty here. We're expanding the faculty and students next year. Um, most of the facilities are done. Gorgeous. And it's just all come out really well. It's the most thrilling thing I've ever been part of. Yep. And I'm sure it's going to be the number one school in the country very, very soon. So let's get started. I, I really enjoyed your book. Thank I you. actually could understand it. I'm a lawyer, but sometimes, you know, even the stuff can get esoteric. But I think it's great because anybody can read this and understand the history and kind of see what's been going on in the thread of, of the what you call the assault on the Constitution. So let's get started. Your, your new book is about the surge of political conservative since the Nixon administration. Now, tell us, how have conservative judges affected those basic constitutional protections, such as freedom and privacy and criminal rights? How have they done that? That's exactly what the book is about, and I'm glad you found it readable. It was meant to be written for a general audience. It's published by Simon & Schuster, a trade press. What I try to do is to show, in almost every area, basic rights basic freedoms that we take for granted have been curtailed by the conservative court. And so I look at areas like education and how we've moved towards much more separate and unequal schools. I've talked about presidential power and how we've recently seen the culmination of the expansion of presidential power in things like torture and unlawful detentions. I talk about the crumbling wall that separates church and state, much more religious involvement in government and government presence in religion. I talk about the great reduction in the rights of criminal defendants, which means that times even innocent people might like access to the courts. I talk about the lessening of individual liberties and personal freedoms, and also talk about how our rights are undermined because it's so much harder to get into court now to have them protected. I know. And I, you even talked about what it was like to, to argue before the Supreme Court. And I know you've done that several times, and I'm sure you'll do that again very soon. Why don't you tell us what that's like, just to give us that feeling of, I mean, I, I get all jittery. One time I, I gave a little speech before the California Supreme Court justices, and I was shaking in my shoes. <laughs> One of the things that I decided is that the book just can't be abstract. It has to show people that the Constitution really affects all of us, often in the most intimate and profound aspects of our lives. Mm -hmm. So I began almost all of the chapters with stories of a case that I argued, because it can then allow the reader to think about it in those human terms. The one exception to that is I actually begin one chapter with the story of my father's death. Mm -hmm. In terms of the answer to your specific question about arguing in the Supreme Court, it's exhilarating. Yeah. It's frustrating. The exhilaration is this is the chance to really have an effect in terms of the law. There's nine individuals who are superbly prepared. Um, If it's a high-profile case, everyone's attention is focused on it. It's also frustrating because the justices don't give you much time to answer. I had one case where 
it was then Chief Justice Rehnquist asked me a hypothetical. Before I could answer, Justice Stevens added something to the hypothetical. Before I could answer, Justice Kennedy added something to the hypothetical. I got one sentence out, and Justice Scalia asked me about something completely different. But it is a form of verbal interchange with brilliant people who are superbly prepared, where the stakes are very high. Yeah, that's exciting that they do their homework and they make sure that they know. I like that that when you have to worry about when the white light is going to change and you have to just shut up. Oh, I know. I've testified in Congress and they've got the the red, yellow, the green, yellow, red. And boy, when you see yellow, you better just end quickly. And I know how very exhilarating that could be, but I'm sure it would be really tough in front of the Supreme Court. So let's talk a little bit about, um, in your book, you say that to understand what conservatives have really accomplished, it's necessary to look beyond the judiciary to the policies developed during conservative presidencies. So what are some of the examples of that broadening of presidential power? I remember during the Nixon era. When Richard Nixon was president, there was a tremendous claim of greater presidential power. In fact, Harvard professor Arthur Schlesinger wrote a book called The Imperial Presidency to talk about what the Nixon administration was trying to do. The Reagan administration took it even further. Iran-Contra would be an example of that, where they claimed that they had the authority to spend money to help the Contras, even though Congress had passed a specific law the Boland Amendment prohibiting it. But I think what started with Nixon and Reagan really came to culmination with the presidency of George W. Bush, where he claimed in so many areas the ability to act without anybody, not Congress, not the courts, checking him. He claimed the authority as president to engage in massive, warrantless electronic eavesdropping. He claimed the authority as president without any judicial review to detain individuals indefinitely. He claimed the ability to suspend treaties and statutes prohibiting torture. And it led to the torture, the real torture, including of innocent people. You know, a lot of that, remember, came after on the heels of 9-11. And so we have seen throughout history this idea of security, that do- things are done in the name of security. How do you respond to that when people do that? It's so important to remember that the reason that we have a constitution is to protect our most precious liberties and values, especially in times of crisis. The framers of the constitution knew that in a crisis, the temptation would be to increase presidential power, to take away freedom. And the constitution is meant to lessen the likelihood of that happening. I think, unfortunately, after September 11th, one of the worst aspects of American history repeated itself. We took away individual liberties, but it didn't make us any safer. Right. And people bought into it. Why do you think people bought into it? People understandably want to feel safer. Mm -hmm. People felt in great danger after September 11th. This was one of the first times in American history there was an attack on the United States on American soil. It wasn't a single nation we were fighting. It was fighting a terrorist group. And so the Bush administration claimed unprecedented, unchecked powers, and people were willing to go along with it. And to a large extent, even the courts were willing to go along with it. And even the Patriot Act, that came about in a hush and a rush and and look what that did. And, and then they reauthorized so many provisions. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The Patriot Act was adopted 
just days after September 11th. Right. In fact, many members of Congress who voted for it said they voted for it without even knowing what was contained within it. And th- some of the provisions have been changed, but most have been reauthorized. And many have a really undesirable effect on privacy, as you know well better than anybody. Right. The abuse of executive power um, was exemplified in a case called Coalition of Clergy versus Bush. Tell us about your journey with regard to that case. Um, Over Martin Luther King Day weekend in 2002, the media reported that the first individuals were being brought from Afghanistan to Guantanamo. They were brought blindfolded in shackles and having been drugged. Got a call from a civil rights lawyer in Los Angeles, Stephen Yagman, who said what's being done to them violates international rights. Somebody should file a lawsuit on their behalf. And so Stephen Yagman and I filed a lawsuit in federal district court in Los Angeles. It was called Coalition of Clergy versus Bush. It was a coalition of clergy members, journalists, and law professors challenging what the Bush administration was doing in Guantanamo as violating international human rights. And I argued the case in federal district court in February of 2002, in the federal court of appeals in July of 2002. These were the first Guantanamo cases argued. Ultimately, it led to my representing a Guantanamo detainee, Salim Garebi, who remains in Guantanamo, and he's been there from sometime in the spring of 2002. So he's been there, as we speak now, over eight years, but he's never had a trial, never had a meaningful hearing. My gosh. And, and I just heard just recently on the news that one of the gentlemen who was you know, brought to Guantanamo when he was 15 or 14... Just today, pled guilty. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you wonder about that. How did that really happen? It was a plea bargain to avoid mm-hmm. a trial. So tell us your involvement with Bush versus Gore. That was a very interesting chapter in your book. In November of 2000, I received a call from a very high-level official in the Gore campaign saying that a judge in Florida was going to hold a hearing the next day on whether or not the butterfly ballot was illegal and whether to order a new election in Palm Beach, Florida. I'm sure everyone remembers that the way the ballot was designed in Palm Beach, Florida, if somebody punched out the Chad next to Al Gore, they were actually voting for Pat Buchanan. So a lot of elderly Jewish voters who thought they were voting for Al Gore, who have never dreamed of voting for Pat Buchanan, ended up voting for Pat Buchanan. And a lawsuit was brought on their behalf. We're talking about hundreds of people and obviously more than enough to turn the election the other way. And so they asked if I would go down to Florida and argue that case. And I did. And then I had a much more indirect, lesser role with regard to the litigation that culminated in Bush versus Gore before the Supreme Court. But it was fascinating to be a part of that history. I think it's important to realize that in Bush versus Gore, the five most conservative justices on the court, for the first time in American history, decided who the president of the United States was going to be. We have so much rhetoric still about conservatives railing against judicial activism. I can't think of a more activist decision in my lifetime than the Supreme Court going out of its way to decide the 2000 presidential election. They could have left it to the Florida courts. They could have left it to Congress to work out. They stepped in to make George Bush president. Right. So what, you know, this, you talk about this judicial activism and, and the the conservatives blaming the the Democrats, but this, the um, conservatives and the liberals. So what is 
this activism, this judicial activism? Kind of give me an idea what we talk about. I think judicial about. activism is just the label that we use for the decisions that we don't like. <laughs> yeah. The reality is that conservatives want the court to strike down the laws that they don't like. Liberals want the court to strike down laws they don't like. Take a very important case from this year, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, decided on January 21st. The court struck down a key provision of the McCain-Feingold Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act. The court said that corporations can spend as much as they want to candidates elected or candidates defeated. In doing so, the court struck down a provision adopted almost Overwhelmingly, it was overwhelmingly by Congress. The Supreme Court overruled a precedent that was seven years old. The court, on its own, changed the nature of elections. That would seem so much to be the very essence of judicial activism, but it was 5 4 in a conservative direction. I just don't think the phrase judicial activism tells us anything. It's a slogan, it's not substantive. Exactly. Now, you've argued, <laughs> you've argued before the Supreme Court. Oh, I'm sorry, not that one. Yeah. Tell us about what's going on with FISA. You started to talk a little bit about that after we talked about the Patriot Act. Let's kind of help people understand the evolution of the FISA courts and the warrantless searches, because I think that's a huge issue that's still going on. In 1968, Congress passed a law that said that any time the police want to engage in electronic surveillance, wiretapping, they need to go before a federal judge, and the federal judge can approve the warrant if there's reasonable grounds to believe that there's evidence of a crime or a crime being right. committed. And that's that's easier than probable cause, right? It's a lower... It's a, no, it's, it's it's basically the same standard it, as probable okay, cause. I thought it was the a standard little is easier. the same as probable... No, the okay. same, it's a Fourth Amendment search. It's the same okay. standard as probable cause. Okay. Um, it's exactly the same. In 1972, the Supreme Court unanimously held that the president cannot engage in warrantless wiretapping for domestic security. Four years later, Congress passed the Foreign Intelligence Security Act. The Foreign Intelligence Security Act says that if what law enforcement intelligence agencies are trying to do is intelligence gathering rather than law enforcement, they should go to a special court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court can approve it so long as there's reasonable grounds probable cause to believe that foreign intelligence information will be gathered. This is the so-called FISA court. What's so important to understand about the Bush program is that they did not go to the FISA court. They engaged in massive warrantless electronic eavesdropping. The FISA court rules in favor of the government about 99.5% of the time. But the Bush administration didn't even do that and claimed that they had the authority is the president just to engage in wiretapping, electronic eavesdropping whenever they want it. Yeah, and I remember hearing, and I, I remember interviewing somebody in Washington, and they said there was always a FISA judge available 24-7, so they can't use the excuse, well, we'd have to wait till Monday to get it, and we need it right now. There was always a judge available. Is that correct? There's always a FISA judge available. Of course, that's also true for federal and state courts. There's always some judge on emergency duty. With regard to the FISA court, though, one interesting thing is the government is allowed to engage in wiretapping, and then if it's an emergency, 
within 72 hours after the wiretapping right, get the warrant. And so it's not even needing a judge <laughs> to be available. But the Bush administration wanted to take the position that they as president had the authority to listen to your phone or my phone or anyone else's phone for the sake of national security without needing any warrant. Right. And that's still going on today. We don't know. When That's my Alberto Gonzalez was the attorney general, they right. suspended the program that had the National Security Agency engaging in a warrantless electronic eavesdropping. But he certainly dropped hints that there were other programs, and we don't know what those programs are. That's... That's the fear for me, at least, that we don't have that transparency. We don't know what the government is collecting. Now, you argued before the Supreme Court on behalf of Leandro Andrade, and that was really a very sad case. Tell us about the case, and what are the implications of that case? Sure. Leandro Andrade was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 50 years for stealing $153 of the videotapes from Kmart stores in San Bernardino, California. He received this sentence under California's Three Strikes Law, even though he had never committed a violent crime. California is the only state in the country where shoplifting can lead to a life sentence. About half the states have so-called Three Strikes Laws, but all of the others but California require that the third strike be a serious or a violent felony. Andrade stealing $153 led him to receive the sentence of life with no possibility of parole for 50 years. And if I remember correctly from your book, his first two uh, convictions were not violent either. No, burglary of unoccupied homes. Property. He had served two and a half years in prison for those a number of years earlier. I was appointed to represent him by the Federal Court of Appeals. I won in the Federal Court of Appeals. And then the state of California sought Supreme Court review, and I lost in a five to four decision. The Supreme Court said there should be great deference to the states in deciding the punishment for crimes. You ask me what's the implication? Well, it means that Leandro Andrade is not eligible for parole until the year 2046 when he'll be 87 years old. At the time I argued the case, there were 362 individuals serving life sentences where their third crime was shoplifting. The Andrade case means that the courts can't give them any relief. There's no ability to argue that their punishments are cruel and unusual. So what about changing that law? I mean, how, how has, there any been, has there been any real effort to change our three strikes law to at least require that the, the first two strikes be violent and that the third strike be I mean, is there anything like that? There was an initiative on the ballot in 2004 so as to change the three strikes law so that the third strike would have to be a serious or violent crime. Right. We're not talking about repealing the three strikes right, law. Right. We're not talking about letting murderers and rapists out. We're right. just saying that the third strike should have to be a serious or violent crime. Unfortunately, though it was way ahead in the polls, the governor, the prison union, worked very hard to defeat it, mm. and it lost. I know there's a hope of getting a new initiative on the ballot, perhaps in 2012. Well, how about getting somebody who is, well, do you think it's political suicide to, to actually introduce a bill like that? How about getting somebody who's really privacy conscious, who's looking at it like saving money and it's not worth doing that to You someone? may not remember that the three strikes law was adopted by voter initiative. Oh, you can only overturn it And so it, it requires voter? an initiative to oh. make a substantial change in it. And okay. there was such an initiative. And as I said, it was way ahead in the polls. Right. And then... 
politicians went on the media saying, this is going to cause rapists and murderers right. to go free. No, it wouldn't. Yeah. This is just saying people shouldn't be in prison for shoplifting. They shouldn't be in prison for life if they, what they've got is a small use quantity of drugs. And you argued that, that being spending the rest of your life in jail for, for stealing videos was cruel and unusual punishment in accordance with the Constitution. So what is cruel and unusual punishment? Well, I did argue exactly that, that it was cruel and unusual punishment for Andrade to be sentenced to life in prison for stealing $153 worth of videotapes. Right. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four decision, rejected that argument. The Supreme Court has rarely been willing to find things in recent years to be cruel and unusual punishment outside the death penalty context. Mm-hmm. Now, the Supreme Court has said that it's cruel and unusual punishment to impose the death penalty for crimes committed by juveniles. The Supreme Court has said it's cruel and unusual punishment to pose the death penalty on the mentally retarded. This year, the Supreme Court said it's cruel and unusual punishment to impose a sentence of life without parole for non-homicide crimes committed by juveniles. Mm-hmm. So what about the death penalty? What are your thoughts about the death penalty? My greatest concern about the death penalty is that we now know that innocent people have been sentenced to death. Our, any human system has the risk of mistakes, but our criminal justice system is terribly flawed. I think John Grisham's stunning nonfiction book, An Innocent Man, is so powerful in telling how it can be that an innocent person get convicted and sentenced to death. Unfortunately, what's happened in the United States is a continuing cutback on the procedural protections for those who are even claiming that they're innocent. Congress passed a law in 1996 greatly restricting the ability of people to go to federal court to challenge the conviction and the sentence. The Supreme Court, a whole series of cases, made it much harder for individuals to go to court. So what troubles me so much is the real risk that innocent people might be executed, that innocent people can be imprisoned and have no, no recourse, no relief. And what about their counsel, having competent counsel? What is, how does that issue come well, up? Well, there's a huge problem in this country in providing competent counsel for those who are facing capital punishment. Um, and I talk about in the book how in so many states there's simply aren't competent counsel to represent those who are facing possible death sentences and how difficult it is later to have a death sentence overturned for ineffective assistance of counsel. I actually begin the chapter there with the story of a man who I represented who's been sentenced to death and he had terrible representation at the trial level and the appellate level but ultimately the court refused to give him any relief. Mm. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. We're speaking with our wonderful dean. He is the founding dean of our law school, and he is also the author of seven books, including his new book that we're talking about today called The Conservative Assault on the Constitution. I have it sitting here right in my hand. It's a wonderful book. As we know, Dean Chemerinsky is a brilliant scholar with regard to the Constitution, and so much more. He's argued before the Supreme Court and many other courts, and he is a fabulous teacher, and he even has a textbook on constitutional law. Thank you. Now, also, let's get back to your book. In your book, you talk about the importance of segregating politics in the judiciary, where the Constitution is involved. Now, is there such a thing as neutral interpretation of the Constitution? No. The reality is that the Constitution is written in very broad, open-textured language. It speaks about things like 
due process of law, equal protection, cruel and unusual punishment. And what a justice finds is inevitably a product of his or her own values. Antonin Scalia finds in the Constitution no protection for abortion rights, a prohibition of affirmative action, permission for prayer in public schools, and aid to parochial schools being constitutionally permissible. No separation you can of understand, church and state. You can understand Justice Scalia's philosophy much better by reading the 2008 Republican platform than you can <laughs> by reading the Federalist Papers. Now, I'm not saying he's unique in this regard. I'm saying that there's no such thing as a neutral way to interpret the Constitution. Right. Every judge, every justice brings their values to it. And that's not just at the Supreme Court level. We were talking about the Fourth Amendment and search and seizure. The Constitution prohibits unreasonable searches. Every day, trial judges have to decide, what's unreasonable? Was the police behavior reasonable? That's inevitably a choice that it's a product of the judge's own values. And it's also, isn't it also a, a product of our evolving society and how life is changing? Of course. The Constitution was written in 1787 for an agrarian slave society. It has to be a living constitution would make no sense. Let me give you an example. Article 2 of the Constitution refers to the president and the vice president with the pronouns he. Right. There's no doubt that the framers of the Constitution thought that the president and the vice president would be men. Right. If we were really limited to their understanding, then it would be unconstitutional to elect a woman as president or vice president until the Constitution is amended. Right. And of course that's absurd. Right. <laughs> There are many controversial cases in the Supreme Court docket this term that, that are coming up. One of them is Snyder versus Phelp, uh, Phelps, which deals with the First Amendment. Why don't you tell us about this case and what about the balance between privacy and the First Amendment issue? Snyder versus Phelps involves the Westboro Baptist Church, a small church out of Kansas, and the members of it, led by Ted Fred Phelps, would go to funerals of those who died in military service and use those funerals as the occasion for expressing a strong anti-gay message. It's not that the Even slain, to military people who were not gay. That's exactly what I was going to say. They're using <laughs> the funeral not because the service person was gay, but as a place to express their message. Matthew Snyder was in the Marines and died in Iraq. The members of the Westboro Baptist Church went to the funeral and use that as the occasion for saying things like, Matthew Snyder died as God's punishment for America tolerating homosexuality. Right. Snyder's father, Albert Snyder, did not see their picketing, but that night on the news was able to watch a video of it. He sued, for among other things, intentional infliction of emotional distress. The federal district court judge in Virginia allowed a $10 million judgment against the members of the Westboro Baptist Church. The Supreme Court reversed, I'm sorry, the, four, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit reversed, right. saying that this is speech protected by the First Amendment, and it's now before the Supreme Court. There is a tension between, on the one hand, wanting to put the privacy and sensibilities of grieving parents, and on the other hand, wanting to protect speech. I think the solution is to allow the government to create buffer zones around cemeteries and funeral homes, Buffer zones have been allowed around reproductive health care facilities right. so that the protesters can still speak, but we also can protect the privacy and sensibility of those who are going to the funerals. And that would mean that the civil liability here isn't allowed, but there are things the government can do. But and the problem gonna, in this particular case, though, was that he didn't see them, but it was on TV. Right. So what are you, you can't take it off the television. 
I think that the solution, again, is not to allow the speech to be punished, but to just push the speech a bit away, protect the privacy and sensibility of the grieving family while still allowing the speech to go on. I'm going to need to leave. Okay, yeah, so let me ask you one, okay, one, one more final question. question I apologize. I know you, you, no, no, no. We apologize to you. All right. There were so many questions that I had, but I, I just wanted to ask you here. Um, you know, people are going to have to read the book to find out all this good stuff. But can you just give us a little bit about how we can reclaim the Constitution to get our fundamental protections back? Sure. The last chapter is titled Reclaiming the Constitution. Right. I believe that when we look at the whole sweep of American history, there's been tremendous expansion in equality. We've gone from a slave society to a Jim Crow society to one where segregation had to be challenged to one that now, even if grudgingly, accepts affirmative action. We've gone from a time when women were chattels of their husband to women couldn't vote to women being able to vote to a real move towards equality. And I think you go through every group gays and lesbians, the expansion of rights. Well, I think so. It's been with regard to freedom overall. There's been an expansion of freedom. But I think when we look back at the last few decades, it's been regressive with regard to freedom and equality. And so I think the most important thing that people need to do is to inform themselves. That I don't think people realize the extent to which there's been a conservative assault on the Constitution, and it's succeeded. Roe versus Wade hasn't been overruled. School prayer still isn't allowed. The cases come down one at a time. People don't realize the aggregate impact. I think that the most important thing that people can do is inform themselves. And I think the way to do it is to read your book. I hope so. So we're going to have them read The Conservative Assault on the Constitution by Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. And we thank you so much for your time. You're wonderful. And we're so so thrilled that you're here at the University of California, Irvine. We very much appreciate having you here. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be at UCI. And I'm also thrilled always to have the chance to be a guest on your program. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Lloyd. So we're back at the studio. Mari, we just heard your interview with the dean of the law school regarding his new book. Give us an overview of Dean Chemerinsky's new book called The Conservative Assault on the Constitution. Well, you know, this book describes how, to a large extent, the conservative vision has triumphed on issues in constitutional law and really what it means for the people in society. And Dean Chemerinsky points out in his book that, from his perspective, the very conservative Supreme Court in our country has narrowed the scope of the Constitution, which he has pointed out with various throughout the whole book, various examples of how this has denied constitutional protection to millions of persons. And those examples are pretty assaultive, actually. And he speaks about things like the separation of church and state. He talks about separate but equal schools, talks about really the dismantling of of the wall between church and state, which is guaranteed in the Constitution And he talks about cruel and unusual punishment, which we've heard him talk about today. So there's a lot of issues about our rights and even the aspects of the intrusions into our personal lives in the Constitution with regard to medical decisions, right to die issues, lots of different stuff. Well, in his first chapter, um, it's entitled, How Does the Constitution Touch Everyone? Why don't you talk about that? Well, he goes into an overview of his entire book, but I think it's really important for us to understand really what some of the major issues of the Constitution that are at stake right now before the 
before the U.S. Supreme Court and what has been the, the biggest issues. And they seem to be the Bill of Rights and the amendments. So let's, I thought for our audience, maybe I could go over what those really important ones are that we hear about all the time. First, there's the First Amendment, and that's the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, the Freedom of Speech, Press, the Right to Assembly. And, and it basically says that this Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of people to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. And so those issues have been really in the forefront, especially with technology. We've seen the issues of freedom of speech on the Internet. Anybody can say anything. So those issues are are really affecting us. We've seen um, issues about the right to assemble with the case where the church gathering people have gone to funerals of, of military people and have protested the military and really said horrible things about the people that were dying even though they uh, had nothing to do with the situation in which the church was worried about the right for people to be in the military if they are gay. So, you know, we've we've seen those that are actually approaching the U.S. Supreme Court right now, and it's, it's a challenge. Then we've got the, the Fourth Amendment, which is the protection from unreasonable searches and seizures. And, boy, that has been a huge issue, I think, especially with the Internet. We've seen just as of late that the FBI is going to Google and Facebook to be able to capture what we're saying on the Internet, the, the wiretapping of our phones, you know, when there is no reasonable cause to to look at that information. So I think that's really very frightening. And, and this amendment says, it's the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And this is something that, I am most concerned about because if one can read all of our emails and show it to the government, cases can be brought up against us that that are really unfair because basically even emails can be corrupted and you can have identity theft of your emails. So that's another thing in the information age. Another big issue is the Fifth Amendment, and this is due process, double jeopardy, self-incrimination. It says, no person shall be held to answer for any capital or otherwise infamous crime unless there is a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. And I think one of the the huge issues that the dean talks about, especially with regard to his his own cases, is the long internment in Guantanamo Bay of people that were never, ever prosecuted. And I know that they're not citizens, but at least to come up with evidence. And he was represented someone who had been at Guantanamo Bay for eight years without any presentment of an indictment. So that's another issue. Are we going to look at how people get a fairness at trial? Another one is the Sixth Amendment, and that's the trial by jury and the right to be accused, confronted. And this, again, goes to the issue of do we have the right to a speedy trial or can you sit in jail for eight years or how long will it be before you're prosecuted? We always read these horrible uh, cases in which the, the case goes on and on forever. Then there's the Seventh Amendment, which is civil trial by jury. And th- this one is really upsetting for for me as an attorney in that now 
you can sign a contract for, or not even sign a contract, but you are engaged in contracts with your credit card companies, with your banks, as an employee, and you give up your right to sue and you're forced to arbitrate. And the same thing if you go to your doctor. You go to your doctor and you cannot get any service unless you sign an arbitration agreement. So this is being violated every day, and these are being upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. It says here that that in civil suits, in common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of common law. So what's unfortunate is we have really given away those rights to a trial by jury. So that's been a huge issue. And there's some, he talks about the, uh, the plame, uh, suit, which I'll talk about a little bit later, but this is, there is an assault on that for all of us. Then there's the eighth amendment, and this is prohibits, uh, excessive bail and cruel and unusual punishment. And there's some real issues about that, even in the state of California, because we have three strikes. So, if someone, and you don't even have to have really a, a violent crime, which, you know, I'm obviously against violent crime, but there have been issues where people have gone to jail for the rest of their lives for shoplifting, just for food. And so he talks about that in his book. And then there is the um, the Tenth Amendment, and this is something that I think is really important. As, as an attorney, I see this all the time, and that is that, it says that the powers of the states and people. So in other words, the power should not be delegated to the United States, to the federal government, which should be reserved for the states. And we have seen preemption of state law in California, which has really been a problem because California, for example, with privacy issues, has really been out there in the forefront. And then the feds will come in and pass uh, federal law that preempts the protections that we have for California citizens. And one example of that is if you're a victim of identity theft, in the past we passed a law in California that said that you have a right to get all the documents of the fraud from the companies that issued fraud uh, accounts to the fraudster, and you can get that within 10 days, and if the company refuses, you have a right to sue them. Well, the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act preempted that, saying, okay, yes, you can get those documents, but it you can get them within 30 days. And if they refuse to provide you those documents, if the companies do refuse it, you have absolutely no right to sue them like you, do in, you would have had in California. So you have to get the Attorney General's office or you have to get the Federal Trade Commission to sue, and obviously that isn't going to happen. So it basically took away those rights. So that's kind of what the overview is of that with regard to the Constitution. And our Constitution really gave us the right to have freedom and liberty. But we see that the government's total invasion of our privacy with things like the airport scanners that force us to reveal our naked bodies or be abused by or in the alternative or be groped. There have been some real assaults on our own personal liberties and our freedom. So on education, what does he what does he mean by separate and unequal schools? Yeah, he has a whole chapter on that, Lloyd. It says that he says that there's a vast disparity between the amount of money that is spent per pupil in wealthier districts as opposed to the poor districts. 
1973, the United States Supreme Court ruled on a 5-4 to four decision that disparities in school funding do not violate the U.S. Constitution because the court held that there is no constitutional right to education. So that was pretty weird. But that there is differential spending, and it seems to be constitutionally permissible. What is an, an imperious presidency? Yeah, he has a, ch- a whole chapter on what he calls the imperious presidency. And imperious seems to seems to mean domineering, and it it means that he's what he's talking about in that chapter is about the unchecked presidential power. It seems that power really corrupts. So we've seen it. For, for many years, both in Republican as well as Democratic presidencies. And we're seeing it even right now with policies that were set up previously. One example is is the Bush administration's detention and treatment of prisoners in Guantanamo Bay that, you know, you could keep them forever. And there have been intrusions with the Patriot Act, all in the name of security. And then Obama seems to continue this in his administration. And I just read recently that the FBI has now the authority to go in and to the Internet and capture our voice communications without warrants, as well as um, going to Google and Facebook and setting up an overview of all that we are presenting on Facebook. And if you're thinking about Facebook with 500 million people and how many, you know, hundreds of millions of people throughout some of these other um, big servers like that, it's it's a real problem. So in Chapter 3, he talks about how the Supreme Court's dismantling the wall between church and state. This is upsetting. And I, I, he quotes that Thomas Jefferson had said that separating church and state means that people will not be taxed to support other religions other than their own. And the Establishment Clause talks about the protection of freedom of conscience by ensuring that the government is not aligned with any particular religion or any religion generally. But we've seen some changes, and and the fundamentalist purpose of inclusion is that basically he's talking about that what we have had in our government is that we want to be inclusive rather than exclusive so that people feel that the government is theirs and it's not belonging to someone with a different religion. But Justice Clarence Thomas has said that the Establishment Clause does not apply to state and local governments, so it only applies to federal governments, which is a very narrow interpretation. And basically under what he says, Utah could declare itself a totally Mormon state and Georgia could declare itself a Baptist state. The core of the Establishment Clause is to really prevent the government from dividing people in this way. So why does he say we're seeing the vanishing of the rights of criminal defendants? Well, this gets back to what I was talking about earlier about the Fourth Amendment, that they have violated... The Fourth Amendment has been violated often in cases where there's been illegally obtained evidence that's been used, and this has been allowed to be introduced into criminal proceedings. And he gives a personal example of his own client, Philip Wilkerson, who was sentenced to be executed by the state of North Carolina after confessing to three murders and one rape. Now, this is a, these are pretty heinous crimes. However, Chemerinsky is arguing that although Wilkerson's cr- crimes were heinous, his Fourth Amendment right was violated when evidence concerning his high blood alcohol content at the time of the crimes was kept secret by the prosecution. So he's not saying that this guy is innocent. He's saying that we have to follow the rules of the Constitution and allow evidence 
that does favor the uh, defendant to come in, not that he shouldn't be convicted. So the Fourth Amendment limits when the police can engage in searches or arrests without, and without it, there is nothing to stop the police from stopping and searching anyone or anyone's home or their car or anytime they want to or searching your computer anytime you want to. So those are the kinds of things that we really have to pay attention to. Even in the cases where there are heinous crimes, we have to make sure that if we don't protect everybody's rights, our rights are going to be invaded as well. So along those lines, what does he say is happening to erode our individual liberties? Well, the Constitution really affects people in the most intimate and important aspects of our lives. We've seen how the constitutional law has really been um, kind of stretched with the Supreme Court, and this is something that is going to be coming up more and more, whether we're talking about contraception, abortion, sexual activity, sexual orientation, custody of our children, or death with dignity. And Chemerinsky points out in the book about an account of when his father was dying of lung cancer. And he was really suffering in his final days, and I can really relate to that when I saw my mother doing the same. And this led him to ask the doctor to, um, you know, to talk about ending his life in, in a matter of uh, a way that was with death with dignity. And this came down to the constitutional issues. So that was a, a real problem. Can we die with dignity? Can we have the right to die with dignity? And is that a personal or is that a public right? And then there's cases like Roe versus Wade, which obviously we know is the right to uh, an abortion, or cases like Washington versus Glucksburg, which is the physician-assisted suicide. And we've had actually a show on that where a physician wrote a book about the death with dignity and allowing physician-assisted suicide. In all areas, the conservatives on the United States Supreme Court have vehemently rejected the idea of these constitutional rights. So that has been a a challenge, and we're seeing those kinds of issues coming up. We will probably see Road versus Wade or other aspects of abortion. That's been uh, narrowed. We also see things like, um, you know, Don't Ask, Don't Tell will be coming before the Supreme Court. Uh, the right to uh, sexual orientation, the right to marry um, a person of your choice. You know, what really, from my perspective and looking at the Constitution, what right does the government have to say who you can marry? You know, that doesn't seem to be uh, a fair uh, uh, constitutional evaluation. Well, are the doors to the courthouse closing? Yeah, we talked a little bit about this earlier, that um, there have been... uh, Things like we, so many arbitration clauses and everyone you deal with, you absolutely as a consumer have less and less power to take your, um, your dispute or your concerns to a real trial court by a jury. You're, you're forced into arbitration. And that has happened with employee, employer situations. That has happened with all the big companies that you deal with, your financial institutions, uh, your, your carrier for your, your phone or your uh, ISP, all of those have arbitration clauses which totally eliminate your right. And then the dismissal of cases on procedural grounds uh, keeps many people from having their day in court. And he talks about the Valerie Plame um, Wilson case when she was outed as an undercover government agent, which was, you know, a felony charge. She she wanted to uh, 
bring a felony charge for doing that. And this was in retaliation against her husband, uh, Joseph P. Wilson. And right now there is there was recently a movie out about this. So um, this was an abuse by power by the higher levels of the Bush administration, which included, you know, Dick Cheney and Chief of Staff Scooter Libby and Presidential Advisor Karl Rove. When she brought her case to court, it was dismissed on procedural grounds. So she didn't even give get a chance to have this heard. Obviously, it's being heard by showing the, the, the movie about her, but basically she her rights, her constitutional rights, were really um, taken away from her. And the conservatives on the United States Supreme Court have made it much more difficult to sue the government and government officials and businesses. And so there have been a series of con, um, concerns about rulings, about technical and procedural issues. And these changes to the law have the effect of tremendously favoring the defendants who have been the government, big business, and government officers. So so that's a problem that, again, the consumers are losing and they are impotent. Um, these types of changes in law rarely make the headlines. You know, people don't know about it, but the individuals are hurt. And it's more difficult for the courts to really enforce the law. And we're really, you know, even though our economy says that, you know, we don't have money for the courts and we're having furloughs where the courts can only meet four days a week or sometimes even three days a week and there's huge layoffs, the the United States court system is really one of the essential areas of the Constitution. Remember, we've got the judicial, the executive, and the legislative area that were set up by the Constitution. And so we're, we're really diminishing that uh, judicial branch, which is the checks and balances. What does uh, Dean Chemerinsky say that we can do to reclaim our Constitution? He is actually optimistic, even though he tells all these horrible things in the Constitution. He's, he's really quite optimistic. And he says that we can reclaim them by... Really, everybody becoming more aware, number one, which is why he wrote the book to really enlighten us as to these changes. And and the court should be guided by the Constitution's underlying goal. And this is to create a more perfect union of hope of upholding decency and freedom and liberty for all individuals. And he you know, the Constitution really looks toward equality in society, and that doesn't seem to be happening. He also suggests that we return to the embodiment of the Warren Court, and that was the central notion is that society is best off having an institution like the uh, judiciary, and the United States Supreme Court and the federal judiciary should be insulated from um, politics to enforce the Constitution and give meaning to it. And so that's what we're hoping that will happen. Now, I know a lot of people are very conservative in this county and across the nation, and they may see his book as very liberal. But I think the point is, is we need to get some kind of um, balance uh, within our whole judicial system and our congressional system and the executive branch as well to kind of look at the issues both from the consumer side as well as business side and work together so that our constitutional rights are protected and at the same time we are really getting politics out of this and being fair to everyone. So 
you know, I encourage people to read this book and and just be open whether or not you agree a hundred percent with with our dean, but to um, you know to really understand that we have these rights that we must preserve, and that's what makes our country such a great country. So I thank you, Lloyd. All right, thank you, Mary. Okay. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Also, we are now on Facebook. And you can email us at, right at our uh, website or at our Facebook site. You can download podcasts right from our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. You can see our upcoming guests, look at their bios and photos and link to their websites. And we really hope to hear from you. And thank you so much for joining us every Monday morning. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm so pleased to also present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and we are welcoming back our Orange County Sheriff, Sheriff Sandra Hutchins, who has served as the appointed sheriff of the Orange County Sheriff's Department since June of 2008, and then she was elected to serve, and she'll start her new appointment in January of 2011, but she is ready to go, and she served for 30 years in the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, and she ended up, she was Chief of the Homeland Security Command for the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Now she leads the second largest Sheriff's Department in California, an organization with 3,800 employees who are responsible for providing primary police services to over 700,000 residents. So she is doing a terrific job, and we're so glad you're back with us. Well, it's great to be back, Mari. Thank you. So what did you learn in that first season as our fearless leader in law enforcement? Well, I did. I learned that um, all, all that I knew, you know, in terms of living here in Orange County. Uh, Orange County is a great place to live. But it's a great place to be sheriff because the public in Orange County, as you know, is so supportive of law enforcement and so committed to keeping Orange County a great place to live. And I always like to say it's not just about the policing. It's about the community and the community's involvement in that. And that makes such a difference in Orange County. Now, what kind of help would you like from your community? We we think it's really important to give tips to our Orange County residents so that they know how they can be supportive to you as well. Right. Um, and, and what they can do is remain involved. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been out speaking to groups and I will hear, gee, uh, I saw something unusual in my neighborhood and I thought about calling the department or your department, but I didn't want to bother the deputy. And and so it's that, you know, taking the step to pick up the phone and give us a call when you see something that's out of place. We want those calls. 
it is not bothering us, and uh, quite the contrary. It's helping us do our job better. And the men and women that get those calls, they give them a direction to go to deal with an issue. The people that live in the community are in the best position to see something unusual, something that doesn't belong, and that helps us tremendously. And I think you and the rest of the department is so approachable, and I think that's really important that we know that you are our peace officers and our safety officers, and and we should know that we really can go to you and share important information with you. So we appreciate that very much. Oh, absolutely, yes. Well, we will talk to you again soon, and good luck. Thank you, Marty. And we sure appreciate everything you're doing, and come back again. I will. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. 